Welcome to the Amplify RJ podcast feed, coming to you with a new show, Restorative Justice Reflections. Last Friday, we dropped a surprise episode reflecting on episode three of The Last of Us, which is a culmination of a project I've been wanting to do for responding to things that we see in media or pop culture that inspire conversations about restorative justice practices, philosophy, and values. On Thursdays, this feed will still feature conversations on the show This Restorative Justice Life with people embodying restorative justice practices in their day-to-day lives. But on Tuesdays for the next couple of weeks, I'll be taking time to have conversations with Kalyan Mendoza, Director of Mutual Protection at Nonviolent Peace Force, about the restorative themes that we find in the HBO post-apocalyptic drama The Last of Us. So let's get into it. Restorative Justice Reflections is a show where we take time to reflect on things that are happening in media that provoke restorative questions. The thoughts reflected here are not a critique of the story or production choices of the creators of what we critique, because art is a reflection of people's lived experiences and people are limited by what they know. We don't expect multi-billion dollar corporations to produce media that is liberatory and art that reflects this idyllic perfect world isn't often compelling, but we hope this conversation helps make connections between the themes present in the story and how we can co-create a world where people and communities have what they need to survive and thrive. This week, we're reflecting on episodes one through four of HBO's post-apocalyptic drama, The Last of Us. Because we dropped a surprise episode last week about episode three, we thought that this week we would do a first half of the season reflection. So this conversation will be spanning our thoughts on episodes one, two, a little bit of three, and heavily four. And next week, we'll start taking things one episode at a time. As I was thinking about how to frame this conversation about this post-apocalyptic world where people and infected are causing each other so much harm, the words of Resma Menachem were really resonant for me. Trauma decontextualized in a person over time can look like personality. Trauma decontextualized in a family over time can look like family traits. Trauma decontextualized in a people over time can look like culture. So as we drop you into this conversation with Kala and I, I want to invite you to keep those words in the back of your mind. Here we go. Welcome back, Kala. You know, we had such a great response from our community about this episode. I know it's not for everyone, so like, thank you for sticking with us in this feed. But today, we are not only recapping episode four, we did episode three last week, but we didn't start from the beginning with the show. So this is a conversation about episodes one, two, you know, we'll work in three and four of The Last of Us uh, season one. Um, We've started with... uh, learning about, you know, the fungal infection, its origins. Uh, we've seen Joel's origin story where he was when the uh, when the uh, infection really kicked off. And then we've seen him uh, meet Ellie and start the journey across the country uh, with Tess, losing Tess, encountering Bill. Um, so much has happened. You know, having our background, knowing the game, we know some more context about the things that have happened and you know that part of the conversation is going to be at the very very end so like no spoilers for what's been shown beyond uh what's uh, been on the show on hbo right now but you know what are your uh impressions of the season so far it's so good <laughs> it's so this really is a, a faithful adaptation um of the show i excuse me of the game i'm really looking forward to what other folks are thinking what folks are experiencing um the way that it is framed and kind of like the parallels with um what's happening now is uh is quite interesting um yeah yeah i'm i, I look forward to 9 p.m um sunday every uh week 6 p.m pacific oh and honestly like i'm not watching it at 6 p.m that's like getting ready for bedtime with my <laughs> with my little one but like that's why we get to have these conversations later on so um we have time to digest, reflect, listen to some other people's takes, right? This conversation is not like a breakdown of all the Easter eggs and all those things that like other people who you may be listening to or watching have, but we're really trying to pull out 
restorative themes, themes about our collective liberation that we can apply to our lives today. And so, you know, from episode one and two, since we talked about episode three last week, um, as we learned the start of this infection, we learned the origin stories, what were some of the themes that were really present for you? uh, Or like, had you thinking about, you know, restorative justice, our collective liberation, all of that? Yeah, I... I mean, centrally, and I'll always say this, like, this is a, a story about love, right? Mm-hmm. How love can look like when it is uh, in a, uh, when it is generative or how love can look like when it is more um, uh, on the inverse, very like savior heavy and not really about thinking about the agency or autonomy of others. I think the, the main themes for me is, um, you know, uh, protection. It is how to, um, how to navigate when you are in a hyper aroused state constantly and uh, living in a state of uh, trauma and violence. Uh, Yeah, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, as I was watching, knowing the video game and knowing what was probably coming in this episode, uh, episode four, what was coming up for me was that there's this scene where, you know, there's a man on the side, a man in the middle of the road pretending that he's hurt. Similarly, in the first episode, we had families crying out to Joel, Tommy, and Sarah at the time for help, and Joel just keeps driving. And, you know, what I think what I, what I think about that when that happens is, like, what are the conditions under, like, which you have no empathy for other people, where you are just out to protect you and yours, however you define that, right? Um you know, that is selfish love. Like, and we're often in this, in the circumstances where we're talking about like, oh no, like take care of yourself before you take care of others. And like, where are the boundaries of that? Because while that's true, right? If you had stopped to take care of that family on the side of the road, um, you might've been put in more danger. One, by virtue of stopping period, right? Like infected could have like come and attacked you. Two, those people could have been infected by, you know, eating the bread flour. Like you, you don't know. Um, or like you would have been more conspicuous by like traveling in a in a bigger party, right? But Joel's like, no, it's just going to be us, me, my brother, and my daughter. We're going to keep pushing. Like, where does that come from for him, right? We learn a little bit more context about you know him feeling like a protector of not only like Sarah, uh, his daughter in the first episode who dies um, at the hands of Fedra, which you know <laughs> we'll talk about <laughs> later, but like also of his younger brother Tommy as someone who he sees as like, who has a good heart, but like is gullible, naive, is prone to like joining up with causes that like are going to end up putting him in danger. He wants to protect those people that he cares about. And it comes at the expense of all the other people that um, he leaves behind. And I think like we, everybody has to decide like how far your people, quote unquote, your people extends out, right? Who are the people that you're going to demonstrate X, Y, Z levels of care to, right? And you know, I think later in our conversations in this feed, we'll have conversations about pods and like how we're how we can extend care or set boundaries with certain people and like what we're willing to do. Uh, but like in post-apocalyptic times, or but really even in times like we're navigating now, where we do have finite resources, we do have forces that are operating against us. You know, what like how are we conscious about the decisions that we're making about when we're extending care or not? It's not as dramatic, but like you know, the person who's unhoused, um, panhandling on the corner, like asking for help, like most often I like keep pushing, right. Keep walking. Sometimes like generally there's acknowledgement for my part. Like, Hey, I see you as a human. Um, I, I'm not going to contribute like monetarily to like your well-being right now because of, you know, time and convenience. Um, and you know, I have finite <laughs> financial resources and like, you know, 
that's not a direct parallel to like helping someone who's injured in the apocalypse. But like, you know, where, how do you navigate like drawing those boundaries for yourself? Well, I want to take it back a bit in terms yeah. of like what has informed this narrative um, of The Last of Us and a lot of post-apocalyptic um, dramas that have kind of like a dog-eat-dog mentality. If we look at the um, the book and the film, um, The Lord of the Flies, yeah. right? It tells a story about um, a group of British uh, schoolboys that basically kill each other, uh, nearly kill each other um, because of... Uh, limited uh, finite resources on a desert island. It's actually um, based on a true story of Tongan uh, schoolboys who didn't do that. They were, they actually built, um, they were on an island by themselves for 18 months. Um, these are folks that were uh, stranded and rather than coming at each other's throats, they built a community where they had um, uh, pigs, they had like chickens, um, they were able to sustain themselves and each other and they were actually healthier after uh, they were rescued than when they started. So I think this is just really about questioning the, the tropes or the narratives that we have been fed in a white settler colonial state that says that we have to be against one another, right? As restorative justice, um, healing justice, and so many frameworks that are built um, from the work of black and indigenous uh, thought leaders, I think it's important for us to think about what is a world that we are trying to build and how can we start practicing that today Right, and I think that's why Amplify RJ and all of the work that y'all do is just so important because it gives us a practical um, applications of re-envisioning um, a world that isn't um, based in fascism, that isn't based in um, uh, disposability of you know anyone in our communities. I think that when we um, look at what's happening around us, because we are in, it feels like post-apocalyptic times. Part of it, what came, what it came down to is like you know, what are the conditions that. Um, allow us to be like on this heightened like level where we are um, working against each other or like being really skeptical of each other and like how do you now navigate those boundaries to which you extend care or you know say like this is what I can give now right you know it might not be, you're not often driving by somebody on the side of the road like asking for like medical attention <laughs> but like we're often encountered with lots of people with needs and you know we choose to engage or not how do you navigate like when to help or not? How do you set those boundaries? Yeah, I think it's really about doing a self-assessment about what your capacity is to support in the moment. This is one thing that uh, we share with folks that we work with, um, either on the ground protecting at protests or in communities, is doing a self-assessment, like, what can I offer for support right now? Uh, and that's really knowing, you know, the access to resources that you have uh, that you can extend without putting, um, uh, depleting yourself in that, whether that's through um, emotional care and labor or physical uh, protection. Material resources. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Knowing what our resources are, how we can um, best support, and speaking to those and finding out uh, and really uh, reinforcing the autonomy of uh, someone that we're there to provide uh, mutual aid for, um, what do they need? And if we're able to meet those needs to be able to provide those resources. It's really interesting to see the way that this story has been chosen to be told, right? Pedro Pascal is... Uh, Chilean by nationality, um, is white presenting in this framework, right? Um, thinking about him being a Texan and not to paint a broad brush, but many of the tropes and stereotypes uh, apply to that version of one, um, Texans, two, um, men, like um, being like emotionally repressed, um, but like caring deeply in very specific circumstances, like forming deep attachments to specific people um, and doing whatever it takes to protect, you know, he's been socialized in a certain way, right? 
you know, both like, like I'm someone who like fully grew up in U.S. culture. And while Southern California culture is not the same thing as Texas culture, like many of those same things are apparent to me, but I don't get to navigate the world in the same way um, because, you know, that's not how I was socialized. As we're thinking about statistically, because I know the Amplify RJ audience, most of the people listening to us right now are not like white presenting men, (laughs) also not white presenting men who like have access to guns and like necessarily have that ethic. But like, as we're thinking about moving through this world in ways that will keep us safe um, and provide for um, the people that we care about, you know, this do it at all costs mentality, even in, um, even in efforts to, you know, take care of ourselves, take care of each other, like can look really messed up in the show. We've seen the way that a lot of people by nature of just surviving have had to do really shady things that have caused other people harm. And, you know, you can take the, uh, common saying among folks on the left, right? There's like no ethical consumption under capitalism. And I think, you know, that's so much true. Like there's no ethical surviving in like this post-apocalyptic world. But, you know, how do you think about like navigating those, those boundaries and like when it's okay to cross those? Like when is it okay to hurt people in order to like get what you need? That's a really great question. And I think that it is important for us to look into ourselves um, and see like, yes, our ancestors have, um, we have experienced violence and trauma and have handed it down, but they've also um, handed down um, survival, uh, resilience, uh, joy. And I think for me, I always think about how will this impact the world that we are fighting for? Does um, does the theory of what I am doing um, match the practice of what I am doing? Because if I cause more harm, in the long run, is it really, um, you know, is this really an, uh, an action I want to take? And I think that it, c- it comes up a lot in the in the show where folks ask, like, what can you do nonviolently in this situation? And I think that's a question for folks. It's like, how do we, when we saw um, Ellie, they've gone through a fascistic uh, schooling that has taught them basically to be a child soldier and to dehumanize others. Seeing Ellie's uh, response at the beginning to uh, playing with the gun and uh, you know, even smelling the gunpowder on it to the moment when they actually had to enact violence, I think it's a question to us about what does it cost us to subscribe to a white settler colonial way of thinking, um, either when it applies to violence, when it applies to protection. What are the frameworks that we can utilize now that and practice now that can inform how we operate in the future? Yeah, I hope that nobody listening to this podcast is ever on like either side of a gun in those situations. Right. Um, and like, those might not be like the most like applicable frameworks to think about. Right. I do think the show does a really good job of like not making it a video game because like at this point in the video game, through episode four, you've killed hundreds of people probably like thoughtlessly. Um, and you know, in this show, like every person who has been killed, right? You're thinking about like the Fedra soldier who like Joel knew because he was selling him drugs before, or like even the three people um, in this space. And I'm trying to think if anyone else was, any other people were killed. Um, you know, but like they did a really good job of like helping us understand that like violence is personal. Like that kind of killing is attached to a person who has a family, who has a story, um, who is a valued part of community, right? And, you know, Ellie processing, uh, having done that, or at least caused harm, hurting someone in this time and space, like, is really reconciling 
uh, with the cost. I was listening to the pod, the official HBO, the last of us podcast. And, you know, as we're thinking about now, episode four, Ellie crying and like after she shot the person, um, one of the creators was talking about how like she wasn't crying because of what she did. She was crying because she didn't feel like she was strong enough to like finish the job. Um, and like, you know, what cost is, what cost is that this world already taken on this person where like, that's the thing that they're thinking about, not necessarily like Brian and Brian's family. And like, while I just met him and he was trying to hurt me just now, like I have now like set into motion things that have ended that will end his life. Right. Joel has been dealing with those things for years and years based off of all the things that he's done over the 20 years to survive. Right. In, in his mind, survive. And right. It's a really good framework to think about. So we talked about how well, you and I, before we were recording, we we're talking about, you know, this line that Joel said to Ellie about like life not being fair or it's not fair that like she had to do this, uh, like cause harm to someone else in order to like protect him and therefore uh, protect herself. But, you know, there are lots of things about the world that people are born into that aren't fair. And like, you know, climate crisis being one of those things, I think it's really interesting, like in the context of this show, like the way that we see like nature um, come back and like replace humans, like it shows like the fragility of like who we are. Like we're not at the center of like the ecosystem that we have on earth. Right. We see like one, like plant life um, overgrowing a lot of things that we've constructed, but you know, in episode four, right. Um, we see a herd of bison, right, yeah. that are that had almost been extinct. And, you know, thinking about the ways that, like, what our absence as humans or, like, the way that we live, um, in the way that that can be generative for nature is, like, you know, we saw something similar in, right, at the beginning of COVID, where, you know, here in Southern California, skies were clear because, like, not so many people were commuting and so there was less smog. We think about, you know, fantasy worlds, like, you know, um, Avengers Endgame, right? <laughs> we saw, like, with half the world's population gone, like, nature coming back in different ways. Uh, while that's not the focus of this show, it's a really important thing for us to, like, remember and acknowledge, like, how we are actively um, altering the ecosystems that we're a part of, oftentimes, for harm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd be curious to know if... Um what your audience has experienced or the, the, um, the narratives that they've heard or that are very tied to ecofascism around, like, if we got rid of all human beings, the world would be better off. But as indigenous water protectors and land defenders have taught us, we are part of an ecosystem with um, ourselves and our more than human relatives, right? When we saw um, the bison out there, like, I remember, I remember cheering up because um, uh, having known... Um, uh, known and learned the, the history of the eradication of uh, bison um, on Turtle Island by white settlers, it was an interesting kind of like nod to, you know, kind of like that reclamation by nature, like you were talking about. So in the scene where we saw uh, Joel and Ellie driving down the uh, freeway um, and they see the bison uh, by the side of the road, to me, that was a really emotional moment because I think it was a reminder that we as human beings are part of an ecosystem we are not, um, we are by no means a dominant uh, life form, in spite of the fact that that's been the narrative that we've been told. If we truly listen to indigenous water protectors and land defenders who have been talking about the fact that we can be stewards and we can really hold the responsibility of protecting the world and the climate um, more seriously, then, you know, The Last of Us and other uh, post-apocalyptic dramas don't have to be prophetic, right? And 
it's it's an understanding our relationship to each other, to our more than human relatives that can really help inform how do we move through this world? How do we identify what our um, boundaries are when um, showing protection? How do we communicate um, uh, what our needs are to each other as a, uh, as a community? It is, this, this show does such a great job of asking us these deeper questions about how would we operate because in the here and now, it does feel like apocalyptic times for so many communities. How do we practice and build towards a world that we want um, that is more just, um, verdant and safe. Yeah. You know, we talked about, you know, fascist forces like FEDRA in, uh, in this case, like FEDRA being established as an offshoot probably of the U.S. government that like had the ideas of stopping the spread of infection and keeping people safe and safe in quotation marks, um, because a lot of harm was caused, right? We talked about in last week's episode, right? Like quarantine zones being limited and people who couldn't fit in, like being shot um, because like one, they wouldn't fit, but two, like they wouldn't become infected if they're already dead. Right. And so like FEDRA is not like this model of like what we want to ascribe to or like aspire to, like to build that like better world. Right. But like we also encounter a group here led by Kathleen that, you know, is not FEDRA is probably a group that was like operating in some way, shape or form autonomously. Um, killing, taking, looting, maybe harvesting, like, what they needed to survive, took over a FEDRA uh, quarantine zone, and that is now, like, inflicting, like, the same kind of uh, authoritarian, um, punitive uh, methods that, you know, FEDRA had, and maybe even worse. It was really interesting in that scene with the doctor um, in interrogation, where, like, she was mocking, you know, the rights that FEDRA was supposedly giving to those that they interrogated, including her brother, right? And, you know, she didn't give the doctor those rights. And what was really interesting that I think is really important for restorative justice practitioners to think about is, you know, the doctor saying, and I'm forgetting the line exactly, right? Like, like, but we can, like, put all that aside. We're good now. Like, forget, like, what I've done to, like, harm your brother. Like, how do we move forward right now in a good way? Um, and there are parts of that line that I resonate with and parts of this line that like aren't quite where I think we should be, right? When we're saying like all of those things that have happened in the past, they don't matter. That's like denying like the pain, the hurt that like Kathleen feels. And I'm not saying that like blood for blood, you did this, that caused my brother pain. It, it caused my brother's death. Like you're going to die. But like you can't like dismiss that pain. Just say forget about it. That was in the past. It forces out of our control. It's the question of like how do we build move forward together in a good way that is generative. But so often when restorative justice has been um, implemented or restorative justice programs or restorative justice processes have been introduced, people who are acting from a place of power say, "Let's forget what happened before this." And like, let's, how do we move forward together in a good way? A really good example is, you know, a kid um, steals something from a liquor store uh, because they're hungry, right? And they go through a restorative process with the owner of the liquor store, the police, the judge, all those things. Hey, how do we repay the person who uh, caused, like, person who lost revenue because you stole, right? Why isn't the question not, what are the conditions that like made you steal in the first place? Like you're a hungry person, you're a hungry kid. Like why has this system failed? Right. And you know, early or on an earlier episode of this podcast, 
and I don't remember which, so this is a terrible callback. You know, we had a someone was telling the story of a judge who find who like was working with a case very similar to this, but find everyone in the courtroom fifty dollars to give to that kid because like we have created this system that has caused the conditions that um, this person, this young person feels like that they need to steal in order to move forward together in a good way. There is a point where like stealing is not ethically wrong. Um, and those lines are fine um, and nuanced, but when we're thinking about like the way that resources have been allocated and the ways that le- resources are legally moved around, like we might constitute some of those things as stealing, right? And like, why is it people who have the least are criminalized for doing things that like are against the law, but like are just trying to meet needs where other people are doing those things to like like hoard wealth? Um, not the one to one comparison with, you know, snitching on somebody to like federal or sorry, federal authorities ending someone's life. But right, there are conditions under which that happened. Those conditions were maybe under duress, right? The doctor shares that like, he's somebody who like has affection, love. She's the person who delivered uh, Kathleen. um, And, you know, she's forgetting all of that. And just saying like, no, because you did this thing, um, you're going to die. May may I ask a question? Yeah. So um, as we saw with Kathleen and her group, they replaced uh, the fascistic FEDRA, right? In my um, time on this planet as an organizer and as activist, I've seen uh, many groups kind of like fall back onto basically using the oppressor's tools to be able to do the work. I'm curious in the work that you've done um, with, with different collectives, with different organizations that are trying to navigate through conflict. I was hoping to kind of like tee you up for um, not like here are some things that apply everywhere, uh, but more uh, here are some things to consider when we're, we don't want to replicate um, uh, harmful systems. I think in general, like the framework of addressing harm instead of saying like, hey, what was the rule that was broken uh, and who did it and how can we punish them? Or like, what does the policy say? What's like the mandatory minimum punishment that gets done? It's, you know, looking at what happened from multiple people's perspectives, who was impacted and how were they impacted? Also, you can also reframe those like, what was the harm um, and who was harmed, who was responsible? Um, and then thinking about what needs needs to be just in order to make it right or as right as possible. Um, you know, people can get jammed up in the what happened of it all because like so much of what we've been socialized to do is like look for like objective capital T truth and like this is exactly what happened and this is why that was wrong. I think that is important, but like we also have to know that everyone remembers things differently. Um, memory is a tricky thing. And what's important is the impact of those actions. And so like, while it's not, while we may misremember or not have the same perspective of like, they said this, they said this, they did this, they did that. The impact and feelings that came out of those things are often the things that are highlighting the needs that need to be addressed more than like, this is the exact thing that she said, or this is the exact thing that he said. Um, and this is why I did that. Um, it's also helpful to look into the conditions under which the harm happened. Um, then maybe you're looking at the policy, like, I thought I was just doing the thing that was right under the policies that we had. And then, like, you get to this place where you're, as an organization, maybe questioning your policies about why things are that specific way. But I think that's a more direct answer to what you were teeing me up for, yeah? Yeah. Um, yes. And uh, if I may ask another question completely. So in the scene where we saw Kathleen kind of, like, galvanizing the um, the revolutionaries or the folks that overthrew and replaced FEDRA, if you were a part of that group 
as an advisor to Kathleen because it seems like it's a very um, hierarchical uh, situation where uh, she's quite literally hunting down um, Henry um, and Sam. Uh, what would you do or what advisement would you give um, as a trusted advisor within this um, small unit or group? About what to do with the doctor or just in general? Just in general. Well, yeah, don't kill a doctor, first of all, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, like, I don't think I'm going to talk her out of, like, locking him up. <laughs> but, like, just because he couldn't save that one person doesn't mean like, you're going to save other people. So what? don't kill a doctor. You know, um, I think what we are going to continue to revisit in this season and because what you and I know about the show and game moving forward is, like, this idea of vengeance um, and, and the cycle of violence. Um, we don't know what Henry and Sam did. We'll find out next week. Um, and, like, we don't know in the game either because, like, the context of, like, the way that they introduce these characters is different. And I'm really, really excited to see what happens with, you know, two Black characters in this post-apocalyptic um, world, even though, yeah, I'm just going to shut up because <laughs> that's going to, like, give things away. Um, but to go back to, like, advising Kathleen, you know, we had the scene where her and her lieutenant, like, saw what was going, some, saw some funky things going on underneath the ground, and they chose to ignore that for the time in efforts to, like, go after, you know, people who she deemed to have, like, caused some kind of harm to her family, when the more immediate danger was, like, <laughs> this is speculation because we don't know, and, like, this is not a part of the game, so, like, we don't actually know, but, like, there's probably some, like, funky infected stuff going on underneath that floor, so, like, maybe we should address, like, our safety, right? Like, that self-assessment <laughs> that you talked about before, before we, like, go extend our capacity to, like, chase down these two people who, again, we don't know yet, may have caused us harm, but, like, our, our community safety is more important. <laughs> well, thank you. Hey, Kala, why did the Scarecrow win an award? I don't know. Why didn't why did it? Because he was outstanding in his field. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you know, these are terrible puns, terrible jokes, and, like, points of connection for Ellie and Joel um, across the episode, like, with some level of annoyance earlier on and less annoyance later. But, you know, what did you think about the use of humor as connection in the space? Humor is such a powerful way for us to self-regulate and um, collectively regulate when we're in a hyper-aroused or hypo-aroused um, state. If we're in fight or flight, freeze or fawn, um, humor is so humanizing, right? Um, it was beautiful. I, I don't know. I love puns. It's very like, you know, um, uh, Filipino elder <laughs> um, uh, giving the jokes. Uh, I thought it was such a beautiful uh, moment of connection. And it once, once again, it reminds us that even in the time of apocalypse, these uh, these humanizing moments, uh, humor, as silly as it may be, uh, reminds us that we are human beings and we do deserve joy. Yeah, what was yeah. your take on them? Well, I mean, I like I too am a, fu a fan of the pun, and you know, as I really think about like the connection that that generates between like Ellie and Joel, right at the beginning of the episode, like he literally says, "Like your cargo." <laughs> right? Uh, you're not, you're not family. Um, to think about where they end up at the end of the episode, not like where like, I have like this deep, intense love for you as like a daughter and I'm your father figure, right? But to a point where there is more care because partially because of like the things that they, the, the trauma bonding <laughs> that they're doing, but also because of the familiarity that's being um, created. I think it's, you know, a really important thing to like 
not just shut off those parts of us because we're facing serious times, right? Like these are like, even like on our level of discourse around like this pretty serious show, like we are like being pretty serious. That's just generally the way that like I move through the world, but it doesn't mean that like there's not spaces for levity and points of connection. I think like really logistically thinking about like the role of humor in restorative justice or restorative justice processes. I'm thinking back to a time in circle where an elder talked to me about, you know, the role of humor and making sure that like we're using humor that connects or instead of like humor that is alienating to people. And right. It's hard to judge whether or not a sentence or a statement or a specific joke is going to cause harm to someone or someone in that space. Right. Like we all have our limitations for what we know and limited knowledge about other people and their backgrounds, but like puns generally (laughs) are really like safe, um way to do that even though like okay but like like i intentionally in this conversation like use the scarecrow joke and not the diarrhea one right because like who's that gonna turn off in our audience probably no one but let's keep it safe (laughs) right like those are the things that i think about yeah it's really humor needs to um it needs to speak to everyone in the room it can target anyone um yeah and that, I think that's the the power of it. It's an invitation to joy in these like small moments when um, we need it. Uh, one of my uh, dear comrades and friends who have, we've done uh, on the ground work um, here in New York and uh, around the country. Uh, one of the things, one of their approaches is um, to use dance um, as a form of de-escalation. So I think we all have the ability to um, to infuse moments of um, intensity, moments of um, fear with a reminder of our humanity um, and that that frivolity, that childlike joy is just so important to have. Um, and I'm so glad that they woven that into the uh, to the story this week. So um, we're gonna get into like all the things about Sam and Henry next week. Um, I mean, I'm, like I said, I'm really excited to explore um, those parts of the story. Um, that was like one of my favorite parts of the game. Um, and I can't wait to see what they come to next. And so we'll be back next week, uh, hopefully on Tuesday with another reflection, like solely focused on episode five. Uh, we're going to get to like our spoiler corner in a minute, but before we go, um, you know, you know, one of the reasons that I have you on Kala is to talk about, right is to bring your expertise as a prepper, like, or as you say, a low key prepper, but like, you know, for people I know, like you're pretty, you're pretty high key, you're pretty like prepared. And today you put out an Instagram post uh, sharing like what in your go bag was. And so like, let's call this segment um, Kala's practical, oh dang, what did I say? Oh, Kala's practical prepper corner. Um, and, you know, share with us, you know, what has come up for you and like how you've thought about prepping for the apocalypse. <laughs> Yeah, logistically like packing, uh, prepping for the apocalypse. Well, as a um, as a California boy, we are pretty much raised to um, to be prepared for uh, the big one, the big earthquake. Right? Uh, I think prepping for me is not so much uh, let me hoard all of these resources uh, and uh, keep them to myself, but rather how do I think about protecting myself while I think about protecting the overall community. Uh, I did a uh, an interview with uh, Time Magazine at the beginning of this pandemic um, uh, around disaster preparedness and why it's important for us to think about community first because we will never survive through any kind of disaster without community. And for me, uh, starting with a go bag is a first step for a lot of folks. And you know, people may be really overwhelmed um, uh, with like, what where do I start off with, right? And it's it's once again starting off with that self assessment, like. 
looking at what are the likely threats that you might experience, what's a likely risk or harm to yourself, what are your vulnerabilities, and what are your capacities or resources, the resources that you have and the resources that you need. By starting off with that, it'll help kind of give a um, uh, like guidance on how uh, what you prep. So, for instance, in um, I live in uh, New York City in Jackson Heights, uh, Queens. I can walk home in about you know an hour from my office. So I know that I'll always need to have shoes um, at the ready. Um, I'll uh, if there were an EMP blast, knock on wood, or as the um, you know, the Office of Emergency Affairs here in New York was warning us about a nuclear attack. Um, if something were to happen, what are the things I would need to do in order to get home? So prepping is really about planning and it helps. I'm a very anxious person and I need to be able to know that I have what I need in order to keep myself safe as I, um, you know, make sure that my neighbors are safe. So uh, some things that folks might want are questions that folks have had is like, where do I start? Um, can I, you know, um, do I need to buy all this stuff at REI? Can I buy this at a, you know, 99 cent store? And first of all, we don't have to um, buy into consumerism and capitalism when it comes into uh, uh, pre preparing ourselves for disaster. It really is about looking at what we have access to right now. So if you have extra socks, just putting away, you know, um, uh, uh, socks into a, um, a bag, a uh, backpack. If we look at what Joel and Ellie has, like what are the, what are the essentials that you need based on your... Um, you know, based on your own uh, respective needs that you've identified. Um, really quickly, I will just share with folks to think about um, these three things. You always want to have some form of protection from the elements, whether that is, you know, um, a poncho, rain poncho, uh, something to protect you from the sun. Uh, this can be clothing. This doesn't necessarily need to be like a tent, but thinking about like, how do I protect myself from the elements? How am I going to carry or filter water um, in the event that uh, one needs to do that? And there's a whole bunch of ways to Look at this, we might talk more about this in depth at a later date, um, but how do I carry and filter water? And then um, uh, lastly, and I think really importantly, like what's my plan of action? Do I need to get home, um, you know, like five miles away by foot? Um, do I need to uh, figure out how I'm gonna go um, uh, uh, meet up with my family or those I love? It's really about thinking about um, what is your, uh, what are the things that you need to do in order to protect yourself uh, and others in a time of disaster? Once again, this is going to be very like personal to folks. It's going to be um, highly individual um, based on your needs, uh, but really kind of starting from um, what are my likely threats, what are the resources I have access to, and what are the ones that I need, and really slowly building up from there because you don't want to just go out and just like buy a bunch of stuff, right? Yeah. Once again, we don't have to subscribe to disaster capitalism um, uh, or uh, you know just buying things. It's really important to be able to practice what we have or uh, to identify what we already have to practice with it, um, whether it's making sure that, uh, you know, the socks that you have are actually gonna last uh, longer than a mile um, and really having a plan of action for how to keep yourself safe. So yeah, helpful. Yeah, I think it really is. One of the things that I was thinking as this episode was going is like, I'd be so screwed without Google Maps, right? You know, Ellie was trying to like read a map and like, you know, this is like my second time in a car, man. Like, how am I supposed to like know? And like, I think, you know, in the world that we live in, like, I can get around, like, my neighborhood and, like, LA freeways, like, decently on my own, but, like, right beyond that, like, are maps a part of, like, that plan? Like, and it's going to be personal to everyone. Um, we're going to revisit uh, Kala's uh, Practical Prepper Corner um, as we go on, and so if you have questions, um, Kala Mendoza on Instagram, um, they just posted um, uh, an example of their go bag, uh, so if you want to reference that, um, 
you can find them there. Um, right now, we're inviting everyone who has not played the games and doesn't want spoilers for things to come to sign off. We'll be back in this feed with another episode of This Restorative Justice Life on Thursday, uh, but then back for Restorative Justice Reflections on episode five of The Last of Us uh, next week. So this is your warning if you don't want spoilers. <laughs> All right. Um, when we're thinking about like the things to come um, and this dynamic of you know Joel being this person who is like now opening up to Ellie being um, like both through through jokes and like familiarity, like learning how to hold a gun, uh, like what came up for you, like also like knowing where the story goes. Yeah, because in in the show, Joel was like, I guess you got to learn how to you know use it. In the um, game, he was much more hesitant, right? And very only uh, in the end, acquiescent was uh, in the game was like even angry that Ellie had to. Um, uh, shoot the hunter um, or the raider that was uh, on top of him, whereas um, it was very different in the show. I think that it's interesting how they're portraying uh, Joel in this, and also I, I'm, I'm curious to know kind of like um, what uh, Ellie's Fedra training was, right? Or was there even training um, on this? Knowing what we know about um, kind of at that point on the ledge in the game when uh, Joel gives Ellie the um, the rifle to kind of like shoot um, uh, shoot our raiders and walkers or raiders and um, infected. Um, how do you see this kind of like planning out from the split or this playing out from the split from the game to the um, show? So, like, I just want to make sure that I like I have a question right. Like, like how do I imagine them playing out the dynamic of Joel's willingness to let Ellie like enact violence? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. Right, um, you know, Joel's not a pacifist, like, but like in this game, sorry, it's like in the show, Joel like shows a lot more. I don't, I don't know if I would call it like regret, remorse, but like it is like sensitivity to like taking life is hard and it takes a toll, and like wanting to prevent Ellie, prevent Ellie from being in those situations as much as possible. I think like when we think about the game, there are ways to play the game that, like, you take as little life as possible, right? Um, I watched this YouTube playthrough where, like, you know, there's only, like, a handful of points in the game where you actually have to kill people. Like, the the sniper scene, like, that rifle scene, like, is actually one of those places where, like, the game just, like, forces you to take life. But, like, there's so many other ways that, like, you can just sneak around people. And, you know, it, it might be more or less difficult depending on, like, your skills with the, with the gamepad. But um, it, it will be interesting to see, like, how much they lean into violence um, as, like, this out-of-control, repressed person who's, like, rage comes out in a moment versus, like, this person who is trying to, like, live as peaceful a life as possible, like, avoiding detection, avoiding harm, um, both needing to cause harm and having caused harm, right? Because, like, when Ellie asks him, like, you know, have you killed innocent people? Like, obviously, in one framing of the question, the answer is yes. But I would also contend, like, in the framework of nobody is a good or bad guy. We just have like protagonists and antagonists from a certain point of view to live, survive this long in this world. As I said earlier in this conversation, um, you've had to do shady things. You've had to do things that have caused people harm. And so like where they decide to fall on one side or the other of that um, remains to be seen. Mm. Any other spoiler thoughts? I have so much. Well, um, no, I don't want to pre-spoil too many things. But I would be curious to know from uh, from the audience, would you kind of go in the direction that 
uh, Joel is going, where it's like you need to protect Ellie at all costs by any means necessary, uh, or what would you uh, possibly do to kind of be able to protect Ellie, but also to limit harm? I don't know. It's the, uh, these are questions that I always think about. You know, I'm not a pacifist either. I believe that we enact violence in many different ways, but I'm all about how do we lessen the harm to ourselves and others, right? Just going back to the show and not necessarily the, the game. What were what was going to be the connection to like this episode or like the first half of the season? Um, you know, looking at how vengeance plays out for um, Kathleen shooting mm-hmm. the doctor, like what uh, what ends up happening. You know, like we saw um, Brian and there was someone else, uh, the person I believe that jumped in front of the car first, right? They they the guy said that they were a goner, right? But were they a doctor? <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's all about the consequences in order for us, you know, to protect. So like looking at that more personally, like what are the consequences of uh, Joel depriving Ellie of their autonomy and agency in a moment when, you know, but I guess we can talk about that near the end. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Yeah. yeah. It's just hard to follow up to, like episode three <laughs> with, you know, it was just so intense. Right. Like, mm-hmm. and I think for me as, you know, like I said, middle-aged uh, queer person, the line were, uh, older means we're here just kind of like resonated it's not to say that this was a filler episode by any means, but I think it was like setting up for what's going to be happening in the next episode, which I think is going to be really intense. Um, it's just uh, also, um, uh, it, yeah, I'm getting I'm getting like the game and the, the show like uh, mixed up because I was like in the game, none of these raiders were a part of a group or they were just, you know, they were there, just there to be an obstacle. But um, in the show, I think we're, you know, we're definitely going to see more uh, more depth and we don't, don't have Kathleen, we don't have like the, the lieutenant. I'm just curious to see kind of like where the uh, the writers kind of take this. So, anyway. Yeah. You know, we talked about how, you know, Joel's mission right now is like to get Ellie to where she needs to go. But like, that's not really his mission. His mission is like still to, def- to find Tommy, find his brother. Right. And it's interesting to see how like they, the character development will play out. Like what are the beats? What are the things that will happen that like continues to uh, build that relationship with Ellie, right? There's going to be a lot more uh, that happens, and, you know, he's gonna eventually, like, try to pawn off Ellie on Tommy. At least that's what happens in the game, right? Because Tommy's a firefly, you can go finish this mission. But, you know, what are the trauma bonds, or, like, what are the, like, actual other bonds that's gonna, like, have him, you know, really decide to, like, know it is my responsibility to protect, or at least, like, see this through? Because, like, he's not there yet. Hmm. Like, you know, empowering her with um, a firearm right now is a matter of practicality, not about, like, care. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So many more things to talk about within the context of the show. Uh, Really excited to come back next week. Uh, Take care until then.